0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Last week I mentioned that uh, we would probably be in Romans for two weeks, but obviously we're changing that plan because we had anticipated that next week uh, we would have our dear brother from Uganda, Raphael Kajubi, with us, but his family's having some problems getting all of their visas, and so uh, we're going to postpone that trip, so we thought it best to just get back into our series through John, John chapter 10. Um, You'll notice my sling. I hope it's not too distracting to you. I had shoulder surgery this week, and um, you should see the other guy. (laughs) As you're finding John chapter 10, if you're visiting with us today, we've been working through the gospel of John. And we're going to spend some time these next few weeks in John chapter 10, which uh, the church laughs at me, but I insist, along with John chapter 9 and John chapter 11 and John chapter 3, is one of the most important chapters in John. But as you're finding John 10, let me just, uh, just on a personal note, just a little indulgence. Um, we started this church 17 years ago, and uh, I was just day by day at that time thinking about the next Sunday. I never dreamed that uh, a little four-year-old boy that was uh, my second son at the time would be a father and dedicating my grandchild today. And so I'm so thankful. Uh, and I don't do this well. I don't, I think, give acknowledgement of the Lord's faithfulness in the life of this church and in Jennifer and I's life. And I'm just so thankful to, uh, to, to, be, to be your pastor to have um, raised my family here with you and to see uh, my grandson born into this church for however long the Lord would have Jacob and Miranda here. I'm just so thankful. What a privilege. What a privilege to have a church full of children. Amen? Before we read John chapter 10, I also want to mention that... uh, Tonight, uh, I'm going to, we have been starting a Sunday night service. Let me wipe my tears away, please, with one arm. Um, we've been starting a Sunday night service at 5 o'clock, and, and that has been comprised mainly of hymns and prayer and a short message. We're going to sing some hymns and, and pray tonight, but I am going to set aside some time tonight to do a, a teaching this evening at 5 o'clock, on our view of the complementary nature between men and women and really the doctrine of complementarianism, which we believe is a vital doctrine for the health of the church and is something that we believe in. And I'll explain that more fully tonight. I think this is imperative for us to uh, remind ourselves of and, and, uh, and to continue to put before us as a church, especially living in the culture that we live in. Uh, Just this past week or so, we saw that um, a man who thinks he is a woman who is an undersecretary of health, a former pediatrician, was named by the USA Today as the Woman of the Year. And then we saw just the past few days in Atlanta where there is another man who thinks that he is a woman competing as a woman in the NCAA swimming championships and apparently won some race there. Friends, we want to be wise and winsome, but we want to be clear to a world that has uh, increasingly gone insane. But we want it to be based on what the scripture says. And so I'm going to be speaking tonight. It will be appropriate for children. I want you to come. I think even young people need to hear this. And we will also think about what implications just the differing roles have in the life of a church, why we believe that only men should be pastors and elders, and Why that's not just a traditionalism, but we think it flows out of the good teaching and the right order that God has for his people and for his church. And so I hope you will come tonight. But let's get into John chapter 10. This chapter is one of the most beloved and well-known in the gospel of John. And so I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And as we read through the first 10 verses or so, I want you to notice three things. I want you to notice the nature of false religion, the nature of false religion. I want you to notice the nature of Christ, the nature of Christ, and the nature of a true believer, the nature of a true believer. I think that's what this text would show us this morning. Listen to what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber. So the context of what Jesus is speaking about here is the, the, the blind guides that in John chapter 9 were, were leading the people astray. And he, here we have a picture of, of false religion. He goes on to say, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens." abundantly. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this passage. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for this beautiful chapter. Thank you for these babies. Thank you for this church full of young people. Thank you for a congregation that loves the Bible, that loves good truth. Lord, let our theology produce in us doxology. Let it not just dead end on us. Let it produce in us the right worship of God. And this morning, as we think about the nature of false religion, and the nature of Christ, and the nature of a true believer, that I pray that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly. Help me to communicate clearly, and Lord, for my friends that are in this room that do not yet know the Lord, I pray that you would give them a heart to believe. And for my brothers and sisters, I pray that you would warm our hearts, that you'd warm our affection for Jesus, so that we might serve you more faithfully. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the nature of false religion here, Jesus says that he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So again, he's in the context of John chapter 9, these blind guides that have led the people astray, and, and he is, he's healed this man that's been born blind, and it ends up being a picture of spiritual birth. But also a picture of how the the religious guides of Israel were blind in their religious uh, false teaching that man can be saved by his own righteousness. And this is the context of John chapter 10. This, This story, this parable, really, this teaching by Jesus follows right on the heels of that. And Jesus is speaking directly to these blind guides. He's laying the the crosshairs of his teaching on them, and he's saying that these blind guides, by not accepting him, they are the ones who are climbing in by another way, by adhering to the old Mosaic law and insisting that their interpretation of it was the way that a person is made right. Well, we may not have that problem today. That may not be the context of our situation. None of us may be saying that we have to necessarily obey some ceremonial law or that we are justified by adhering to the Mosaic code. But we know that that we also have false gospels in in our day. And we know from other passages that false gospels, false religion, isn't just isolated to what was going on here in John chapter 8 and John chapter 9, but it has a wide playing field. And what's going on here, notice the picture, there's there's a sheepfold, think of like a circular enclosure. And Jesus is saying that there's only one entrance, there's only one way. And he's saying that those that would climb on the wall, climb over the wall from any other part of the circle, they are thieves and robbers. They're, they're false teachers. And just think about that picture in your mind. There's, there's so much opportunity, basically anywhere on that sheepfold gate or wall, other than the one entrance is what Jesus is classifying as a false teacher or a false religion. So this means that false teaching, false religion, enjoys a wide playing field. It basically includes everything except the true gospel. It's, the, it's false religion that can be very far off, like the, the Hare Krishnas. Or it can be a false religion where the truth is a little bit closer. Think of something like the the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons who are are just off a little bit on their doctrine of the Trinity and the person and work of Christ, and it ends up destroying their whole gospel. Or even much of what passes today in what we would consider Christian circles is, is nothing more than the religion of self. Self-fulfillment, become a better you, get in touch with yourself. And many churches that would have a statement of faith that would be similar to ours preach this kind of gospel. They give a a kind of acknowledgement of good doctrine, but in their actual teaching, it's a gospel based on us. It's basically a Tony Robbins seminar or an Oprah Winfrey book club with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on it. And friends, it will not save. It can masquerade as Christianity. It can masquerade as the one true way, but it will not save. And that's what Jesus is telling these these blind teachers in John chapter 9, and that's how it would apply to us. In false religion, here's the thing we need to know about the nature of false religion is that it rarely announces itself as False. It doesn't just jump out from behind a rock and say, Hello, I have a subtly false teaching of the person and work of Jesus, and I'm here to drag you into heresy and away from the Lord. That's not how false teaching works. It often comes in in a very subtle way, it's couched in reasonable logic and acceptability. And it co-ops and manipulates the meaning of words, and it uses them for its benefit. Think of our culture, and think of just even the assault on just traditional understandings of marriage and what it means to be a man and a woman. And again, I will speak in more depth about this tonight. But just think about the word phobia. This word phobia, is, it's, it's an irrational fear. And if you are a person that has a traditional understanding of human sexuality, you would be labeled by the majority of our culture, maybe even some people who would profess to be Christians, as homophobic, as if you have some irrational stance. Friends, that's a co-opting of a word. And then you think about the word love. Well, why can't we just love is love? Why can't we just love, let people be loving? Why can't we just be loving? And the word love interpreted this way in a false sort of way is a kind of Trojan horse that comes into the church. It comes into a real understanding of the gospel, and it co-ops a real understanding of love which is that the most loving thing that we can do is be clear about the real gospel, winsomely, wisely, and compassionately tell the world about the love of God in Christ Jesus, which means that we rightly talk about the judgment and righteousness of God if a person is outside of Christ, but that has somehow become judgment and complete acceptance. Now, is what we call love. That's a co-opting of language, it's a kind of false religion. In progressive Christianity, theological liberalism, and when I say liberalism, I'm not talking about political liberalism. I'm talking about theological liberalism is not another version of Christianity. It's not Christianity at all. And I think it's the primary false gospel that we are battling in our culture. In Jesus' time in John 8 and John 9, with these... Pharisee teachers, and then in Paul's day, a few decades later, much of the New Testament, books like Galatians and Romans are dealing with justification by works, these things that you must do in order to be saved. or In fact, the whole letter of Galatians is written that you have to add circumcision to your faith in Jesus. In other words, you need to go back in time to be fully Jewish in your adherence to the law, and that is what would justify you. I don't think any of us are dealing with those issues today, but we are dealing with a kind of false gospel that says you must add this. You must kind of believe this sort of acceptance, this this, this, this theological that accept anybody for whatever they want to do, and who are you to judge? It's not another version of Christianity. It's a false religion. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. For since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I am afraid... That as, a, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And he goes on to say just a few verses later in verse 12, And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, listen to this, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Friends, don't, make no mistake that we may not be dealing with the false religion that Jesus dealt with in his day, but we are dealing with false religion today. And it is a type of thief or robber that would want to come in outside of the gate. It wants to hurdle the wall. It wants to come in by another way and climb and that man that teaching that mindset is a thief and a robber and here's one final thing about the nature of false religion before we move on to the nature of Christ is that all false religions all false understandings of the gospel share one thing in common they hate the exclusivity of the one true entrance which is the good news of the gospel. They hate it. Which leads us to the nature of Christ. The nature of Christ. Look again at verse 2. It says that he is the door. That he, that he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So Jesus, the nature of Jesus is he's, he's telling us. This is an analogy, a parable, where he is telling us who he is. He's saying that he is the shepherd, the good shepherd, This psalm is so familiar to us. I I think that we just get so familiar with it, but we should read it often. let Let me read to you Psalm 23. This is speaking of the good shepherd in John chapter 10 that Jesus is proclaiming himself to be. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. and he leads us through the valleys. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He's not only our good shepherd, but verse three of our text says that he calls his sheep by name. So this isn't just a mass crowd here. Okay, come on, come on, anybody. Jesus knows you. He's the good shepherd that knows his people by name, verse 3 says. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, each one of them, one by one, and leads them out. Friends, Chris quoted earlier as he was dedicating the children, Psalm 139. There's this beautiful psalm where it talks about how he knows our thoughts before one of them. He knows the number of our days before one of them came to be. Some of us in this room may feel very forgotten. You feel kind of caught up in the crowd. What does my life really mean? Does does it matter? Does anybody know me? Listen to Psalm 2710. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. Friends, if you are a believer, he will knows you. Matthew 10, Jesus says he knows the very number of hairs on your head. He is a shepherd that knows his sheep by name. But not only does he know them by name, he leads them out. Look at verse 3 again. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He leads them out of the kingdoms of this world. He, he leads us out of something. He leads us out of sin and into his presence. Friends, Christianity, we alluded to it this morning, isn't something that you're born into. It's something that you're delivered into. Colossians chapter one, Paul says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So if you're a believer, you've been let out of something and into the kingdom of God. Now your situation may look very, very different. Uh, Just this past week, today is March 20th. March 16th, 1989, I vividly, I was a senior in high school and I vividly remember hearing the gospel for the first time. And the Lord called me out of sin and into faith in Christ. That's a very different testimony than, say, for example, my wife has who grew up in a wonderful Christian family where she likely doesn't remember the day when she first trusted in the Lord. And I pray that is the testimony of all these children. But make no mistake, friends, whether you are 40 years old or whether you are 4 years old, we have been led out of death and into life by a sovereign king. He leads his people out. It's a victorious parade. Nobody just kind of makes it in. One by one, he leads them out. And he, listen to this, in verse 4, he brings them all out. Every one of them. He brings all of them out. John chapter 6 that we went over a couple months ago says that all those, Jesus is telling his disciples, he says that all those that the Father has given me will come to me. And no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So, so there's no scraps that fall off of Jesus' salvation table. Everybody that God has, the Father has given to the Son, every single one of them makes it all the way home. Jesus is successful on every one of his rescue missions and every one of them is an individual rescue mission and he brings his people all the way out. That's the nature of the Good Shepherd Christ in this text. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Are you familiar with this text? I think we've read it a few times here. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice how tight and airtight that seal is. Every single one that he predestined, he also called. And every single one that he called, he also justified. And every single one that he justified, he also glorified. Do you feel very glorified right now? I don't. But you know what? The Bible is so certain that if you are a believer, if you're trusting in Jesus, if your sins are forgiven, if your hope is in Christ and not in yourself, it speaks of your future as so certain that it speaks of it in the past tense. He brings all of them out, every single one of them. And listen to what it says in verse four, that he goes before them. He goes before them to the entrance of the pasture, to the door of the kingdom, and they enter in, not because of their righteousness, not because of their good deeds, but because of his. That's the beautiful message of Romans, and in fact, the whole gospel is the message of Jesus laying down his life taking the sin of his people and giving them his righteousness. So now when we die, we stand before the Lord and we enter into heaven, not because of our righteousness, but because of his. And when the Lord looks down on his people, he doesn't see our good deeds or our sins. He sees the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now I want you to think about three imputations, three transfers that happen in the Bible. Three. Three. First is that all of us have been imputed, we've been transferred the nature, the sin of our first father, Adam, from generations past. We've got different ethnicities in here, different nations, different languages, but we all descend from one father, Adam, and we have all, the Bible's very clear about this in Romans chapter five, We have all received. We've been imputed. It's been transferred to us. His sin nature is ours. So none of us are born neutral. We are all born in sin. And then when God saves a person, and God saves a person, here's what happens. Jesus then, this is the second imputation. Jesus lays down his perfect, sacrificial, obedient life. God in the flesh. God become man lives a perfect life, lays down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And here's where the second imputation, the second transfer happens. Our sin, for those that are trusting in Jesus, is imputed. It's transferred to Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. So that's the second imputation. We get sin from Adam. All of us are born in sin. We are by nature sinners and we are by choice sinners. We sin. All we do all day long is sin before we come to Christ. And then God awakens our heart. We trust in him. Our sin is transferred to Jesus and it's laid on him and he removes it as far as the east is from the west. He takes it away. He satisfies it. He propitiates it. He absorbs it. He, as Spurgeon says, it's been a while since. Since we've quoted Spurgeon here, and I'm sorry for that. As Spurgeon says, he drinks damnation dry. He satisfies it. Lord. And our sin is transferred to Jesus. It's imputed to him. He actually becomes sin on the cross. He dies for sin. And then here's the third imputation, the third transfer it's the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now his righteousness is imputed to us. He gives us his right. He goes before, he takes our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. Friends, this is the gospel. And now... There's these beautiful verses in Hebrews in Romans chapter 8 that says that Jesus, Hebrews chapter 7, he daily lives to make intercession for us. And in Romans chapter 8, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Christ is interceding for us. And so when you stand before the Lord someday, when he takes you home, if you are a believer, Jesus has gone before you and he is saying to the Father, this one is one of the ones that you gave me. He is ours. He's ours. He goes before them. He intercedes for us. He gives us his righteousness. He takes our sin. And he's also the door. Verse 7, Jesus is the one and only true way. We'll get to it eventually. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus goes before them. Jesus is the door Verse 9, Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. Look again at verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He's our savior. He's our sacrifice. And we'll go in and go out and find pasture. And he feeds his sheep. We graze on his word. We feast on him every month when we receive communion. This is the nature of Christ. This is what Christ does for his people. This is the good shepherd. He does it all, friends. Here's the question before we move on to the nature of a true believer. Do you know this Jesus? Are you trusting in this Jesus? Not in some self-help gospel, but do you know this Jesus? And Christian, do you need to be reminded of this Jesus? What are the implications of these truths if you do know this Jesus? Friends, one is, just very briefly, in this chaotic world, is that he will not lose any of his people We can have confidence in that. We sing this song often, How Firm a Foundation. Listen to this stanza. The soul that on Jesus doth lean for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Jesus is a good shepherd that leads all of his people all the way home and keeps all of them. And we'll get to next week where he says, nothing can snatch them from my hand. So the nature of false religion, the nature of Christ, and finally the nature of a true believer. First is they follow him. Notice what it says there. They follow Jesus. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 4, the sheep follow him for they know his voice. They do more than just give mental, cognitive assent to the existence of God. They follow him. Jesus says in the gospels that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, this does not mean in any way we know this We don't need any evidence of this other than to just live with ourselves for more than 30 minutes or hang around this church for any length of time and you will know that Christians still struggle with sin. Amen? William Arnaud, the wonderful British theologian back in the 1800s that I love to quote, says that the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that the believer is taking God's side against their sin their remaining sin, while the unbeliever is taking sin side against a dreaded God. And so much is bound up in our posture. Are we taking God's side against our remaining sin? That's what it means to follow him. Or are we taking sin side against God and maybe deceiving ourselves that we believe in him, but not actually striving to follow him with our lives? The nature of a true believer is not just that they hear his voice or acknowledge his voice, but that they follow him. And friends, let's admit that we cannot do this on our own. We need one another for this. They follow him. They know his voice is another nature of a true believer. They know when the Lord speaks. And how does Jesus speak to us? He speaks to us through his word. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3. Verse 16 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So he feeds his people with his word. That's why we preach from the Bible. That's why we encourage you to read your Bible. That's why we always open our Bible when we gather together, because it is through the scriptures that the Holy Spirit speaks to his people. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. That's His word. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So we feed on him. We follow him. We know his voice. It's important that we have discernment as we discern what his word says to us. That's why we need each other. Listen to what Paul prays for the Philippian church. And it is my prayer, Philippians 1 verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those, listen to this, who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How are our Powers of discernment trained by listening to God's word. How do we get to a place in our country where supposedly professing Christians would believe something as ludicrous as some Christians believe today about gender and sexuality because we don't listen to those churches, those types of people don't listen to his voice and their powers of discernment are dulled. That's why we need to feast on his word. And then finally, one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Bible, or verses in the whole Bible, John 10, verse 10, that we can have life and have it more abundantly. That's the nature of the true believer. Now, what does this mean? Now, prosperity gospel preachers will tell you that it's riches. Riches. And some others, knowing the excessiveness of the prosperity gospel, will tone it down a little bit and say that this means the blessed, the relatively stress-free life of self-fulfillment. It's a become a better you gospel. It's an optimize your potential type of living. It's a be all that you can be. But the biblical answer to the abundant life is actually much better than that. It's the gritty and grace-filled life that is empowered by the good news of the gospel as we are indwelt by the Spirit. It's the life that I think Romans chapter 8 marks out for us. Let me read to you a few verses from Romans chapter 8. It's the life that because of Christ means that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's abundant life. Life may be hard, you may, things may not go your way, but if there is no condemnation for you because of what Jesus has done, that is the very definition of abundance. It's the promise of the Spirit that indwells us, that we can fight our sin with. It's the promise of future glory. Verse 18 of Romans 8 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the abundant life is not a stress-free life. It's not a trouble-free life. It is the promise of future glory and that no matter what we're going through right now, God will bring us all the way through and heaven will be better by far. It's the promise that we have the spirit that dwells in us to pray when life gets so hard that we don't even know how to pray. Verse 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's the abundant life. It's the abundant life that God promises to work all things together for those that love him, good, bad, and everything in between. It's the promise that everything must work together for our salvation and God's glory. It's the promise, the abundant life, of who can be against us, Of verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The abundant life is the promise that nothing nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And why can we put our hope in this? Because of the good shepherd and the one way, the door that is Jesus. Now I end on this, friends. Like anything in life, this type of, this type of truth, this type of life requires work and effort Two years ago on this Sunday, we didn't meet, was the first time we didn't meet because of the pandemic and the world changed. And one of the things that we said during that time as we gathered together via live stream and then eventually gathered together back in person, trickled in over the next weeks and months, we fastened ourselves to the truth that God works all things together for the good of those that love him and are called according to His purpose. And we said that whatever the Lord is doing, whatever the Lord is doing in this pandemic and what we're going through politically and all of the racial tension and this, this, this cauldron that we find ourselves in culture, culturally, we know that the good shepherd is working it all out for our good and His glory. And I have a question for us. Is that the case for you? Has He been working together for your good? Anything that we do in life requires effort. It doesn't just happen. This beautiful truth that God will work out all of these things, that the good shepherd will do all of these things for us must be combined with our personal responsibility. Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And so we must strive, we must struggle, we must strain to make these things true. Go back to John chapter 10. look at verse nine again. "I am the door." Notice that word: If. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Friends, if there's anything that I think has marked uh, the life of this church, it is the, I think, clear biblical teaching. In the utter, exhaustive, good, comprehensive sovereignty of God. I believe, as the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689 says, that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. I believe Isaiah 46 that says that he has declared the end from the beginning. I believe Nebuchadnezzar a pagan king in Daniel chapter four who says that nothing can stop his hand. I believe in the utter exhaustive sovereignty of God over all of human history. I believe that in God's perspective, tomorrow is certain. I believe that he is utterly in control. And I believe in the complete sovereignty of God. But I also believe in the responsibility of man. And I think verse 9 says that if, if, if we will do this, if we will work out, if we will respond, if we will follow, these truths don't just happen, they don't just come to us. If we will respond, if we will fight, if we will lean forward, if we will work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and we live in that tension, God is sovereign, we are responsible, if we respond to him. All these things are true. The nature of false religion, the nature of Christ, the nature of a true believer, the good shepherd who works it all together for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage, for this 10 verses. Thank you, Lord, for helping me get through this with a bad shoulder and pain medication Thank you for all these babies. Thank you for this great truth. Lord, let it not hover above us like a satellite in the heavens. Let it land on us. The world is full of false gospels and false ways. Give us discernment, Lord. Give this church discernment there's any in this room that are caught up in a false teaching, a false gospel, a false understanding of the gospel, would you show them the way, the truth, the life, the door, the sheep gate, the only way that we can come in, which is Christ, his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection and faith in him. And for those of us that trust and believe in that, Lord, would it Would it inform our lives? Would we be marked by the nature of a true believer that we follow you, that we fight sin, that we do it together, that we lean forward, that we work out our our salvation, that we feel the pressure of the command of Scripture to follow you, to struggle, to strain. And that is the abundant life. Lord, may we honor you with these truths. May we lean forward now as we sing and worship. And may you be pleased with the life of this church, with the lives that are represented today. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.